Let's continue to worship together by taking God's Word and turning to the book of James, chapter 4. We began this series in James in August of last year, and at the time I shared five prayer requests with you. Uh, Number one, uh, I suggested that we should be praying that God would use the book of James to save us from free grace theology. Proponents of free grace theology believe or firm argue that faith is a singular act confined to a moment of time. And so here is my life. To believe in the Lord Jesus is something that happens at a defined moment on that continuum. It has a starting point, an end point. I believed I made a decision. And it does not matter what happens after that life, after that moment, throughout the rest of my life. Uh, James disagrees vehemently with that. And James makes it clear that faith is not an act. It is an attitude. Uh, We come to faith in the Lord Jesus. We receive the Lord Jesus. Yes, it begins at a moment in time but it becomes a way of life, and it is made manifest in the way in which we live our lives. Secondly, we're praying that God will use the book of James to convince us of the nature of true religion. Uh, James makes it plain, makes it clear that religion is transformative, that faith in Christ bears fruit, that coming to know the Lord Jesus alters, transforms, changes the entire life. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is excellent. Knowledge is extremely important. We must grow in knowledge. We must strive after knowledge. But knowledge divorced from change in the life is useless. And all it does is puff up. Our creed, our confession is only as compelling as our conduct. Thirdly, we are praying that God uses James to show us what it means to live under grace. Five chapters, I think 108 verses. He only mentions Jesus three times. He has nothing to say of his crucifixion, nothing to say of his resurrection. He doesn't go anywhere near what we might label what we might identify as the essential articles of the Christian faith. Rather, he gives 59 commands, commandments. And it has led some to dismiss James. It has led some to look down upon the book of James as a weak gospel. Nothing could be further from the truth. James knows the gospel. His point is this, to show us what it means to live in light of the gospel. His point is this, to show us what it means to live in the light of Christ's infinite merit and Christ's infinite mercy. Number four, we are praying that God uses James to challenge us to evaluate our lives. This book will break you or it will harden you. Did you just hear what I said? It will break you or it will harden you. This book will change us or it will condemn us. It is, in my estimation, perhaps, if not the 
one of the most convicting books in the Bible. Why? Because James gets after us, and he doesn't let up. That's the problem. From the get-go to the end, he never pauses. He never takes a breath. He is after us. He is after us. He is after us. And he unmasks the depravity of the human heart. Oh, this book, let me repeat it. It will change us or it will condemn us. And fifthly, we're praying that God will use James to teach us much practical wisdom. It is a little book of Proverbs, really, is what it is. And there is so much heavenly practical wisdom that by the Spirit of God we should seek to apply in our lives. You know it by now. I certainly know it as I have read over and over this book, over and over again. James has a great deal to say about the tongue. Turn with me. I know you're in chapter 4. I've misled you already. Back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1. And look at what he says with me in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Into the second chapter, verse 2. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Over into chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Same chapter, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Just down a few verses. Number eight, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Into now the fourth chapter. And the verses we are going to consider today by God's help, staying with this theme of the tongue, verses 11 and 12, hear them now. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? I am going to take you by the hand, and folks, we are, going, we are about to sojourn, we are about to walk through a very unpleasant valley, and the mountains are going to loom large, and they are going to appear quite threatening at times, and the shadows are going to press in, and so I want to give you a little bit of light at the end of the valley, and here it is, words of a well-known song. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just 
is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? You're thinking to yourself, well, just stay there, Stephen. I can't stay there. I preach the text as the text dictates. And so ready yourself now because we are about to enter very unpleasant terrain. James gives us a command. It's there in the 11th verse. He then gives us a reason. It's actually a fourfold reason for heeding the command. And then he makes a heartfelt appeal right at the end of verse 12. That's what we're going to see. Here we go. Come with me now. The command, verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers, do you see the phrase speak evil against? Follow as I read on. The one who speaks against or speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Three times. It's the same word in the Greek. For some reason, the English translation, they say speak evil against, speak against, then speak evil against. But it's the same term in the original. To speak evil against someone else. A brother, primarily who James has in view. James is not talking about public denunciation. At times, sadly or regrettably, that is necessary, isn't it? Christ himself denounced the Pharisees as what? Whitewashed tombs. Ooh, not very pleasant stuff. He denounced Herod, a king, as what? A fox. The Lord Jesus did not shy away from public denunciation. At times, the nature of sin and the gravity of sin and error necessitates what? A public response, a public denunciation. That is not what James is talking about. He is not speaking of public denunciation as speaking evil against a brother. Nor is James speaking of private admonition as a form of speaking evil against a brother. We know we are accountable for one another. And we know at times our brothers and sisters in the Lord have a responsibility to rebuke us. They have a responsibility to correct us. They have a calling to challenge us if we have deviated from the straight and narrow if we have brought the faith into disrepute, if we are conducting ourselves or living in such a manner that is ultimately detrimental to ourselves, the flock, the name of Christ, the glory of his kingdom, uh, we have a responsibility, however unpleasant it might be, to obviously speak the truth in love, but draw one another to our shortcomings, our failures, and our sins when necessity dictates. So James isn't speaking of that. He isn't speaking against public denunciation, nor is he speaking against private admonition. So what's he got on his mind? He's got a real bee in his bonnet here, doesn't he? And he makes it very plain. Speaking against, speaking against, speaking against. What's he talking about? William Tyndale, one of the earliest reformers in England, translated the Bible uh, out of the original languages into English. And he translated this term as backbiting. Backbiting. To speak evil against is to backbite. Uh, you're familiar with that word, right? We, we use it and don't really think much about it. I think we have a pretty good handle on what it means, but the, the history of the word is actually quite fascinating. Backbiting. Where did he get it from? Back up until the 19th century in England, um, a favorite pastime was bear baiting. Now that might be new to some of us. Bear baiting. What's bear baiting? You'd get a bear, 
an ornery bear, and you'd build an arena, a small arena, and you would chain the bear in the middle of the arena, and then you'd let loose several bulldogs. This was bear baiting. This was a form of entertainment. Queen Elizabeth herself loved them. Queen Elizabeth I, that is. Queen Elizabeth II would be horrified. But Queen Elizabeth I loved them. And so there you'd have this poor bear, this mammoth of an animal there in the middle of the arena, people all around. And the door would open and out would come four or five bulldogs and the blood sport, the fight would ensue. If you're one of those bulldogs and you have any wit about you at all, what are you going to try to do? Bite his back. Hence, back biting. An attempt to take down. An attempt to take down. An attempt to attack. An attempt to diminish, to weaken from behind. Out of sight. Without the person present. That is what James is speaking of. James is warning against any speech, any speech that attempts to attack someone demean someone, misrepresent someone, diminish someone from behind. The word we use today is what? Slander is the word we use today. It is backbiting. It is speaking evil against a brother. Now, have you got the sermon notes in front of you? You can let out a little collective gasp now if you do. <gasps> because you see 11 Blanks, I told you the shadows are coming in. I want us to have a composite sketch of what this backbiting, what this slander is. Uh, uh, by the time we're finished, um, you're going to be saying, to, okay, I get it, I get it, enough already. I, I want us to be clear. You know, a crime is committed. You think of your favorite uh, spy novel or, or, or TV show or something, or a uh, police show, and crime is committed. They don't know who, who done it. And they gather their experts together, and what do they put, try to put together? is a composite sketch, a psychological profile of the criminal, so that they know, who are we looking for? Uh, who, are, who are the suspects? Who could possibly have committed this crime? And so I'm going to put together this composite sketch. It's going to consist of 11 points. I'll go as rapidly as I can. That's the only promise I can make. And here is number one. The first part of this sketch Backbiting slander is a common, common, very common sin. It's a common sin. Paul writes, first century, first century church. He writes to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 12, 20. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. Here's what I'll find, that perhaps there may be quarreling, Jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. First century church. Earliest church. First believers. And here we are 20 centuries later and absolutely nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing. It is a problem that plagued the church then. It is a problem that has plagued the church throughout its 2,000 years of history. And it is a problem that acutely plagues the church today. It is an all-too-common sin. Common, common, common. Secondly, building on it, it is a respectable sin. It has become a respectable sin. 
Great little book if you've never read it. Jerry Bridges is called Respectable Sins. And Jerry Bridges writes the following, Those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined and subtle sins. He speaks of anxiety, discontentment, self-righteousness. He mentions selfishness in our use of time and money. He makes mention of intemperance in our eating, drinking, spending, shopping. He lists ingratitude, impatience, irritability, anger, resentment, bitterness, enmity, hostility, envy, and jealousy. He adds to it judgmentalism over differing convictions. He speaks of vicarious immorality, the enjoyment of watching or reading the sinfulness of others. And as if that, that weren't enough, he adds gossip, deceit, sarcasm, ridicule, and slander. These are respectable sins. We'll rail against abortion. We'll go after homosexuality or other acts of immorality. And we will speak against this. We will speak against that. We will denounce this. And we will denounce that. And Jerry Bridges' point is well made. All the while completely disregarding these far more subtle yet far more common sins rampant in our own midst and in our own lives. Third mark is this in this composite sketch. It is a subtle sin, a subtle sin. Slander doesn't necessarily involve lying, although more often than not, it does involve at least a distortion or misrepresentation of the truth. Slander in its basic form is this. It is speaking about another person in an unhelpful way when that person isn't present. That's what it is. It is speaking of another in an unhelpful, unedifying way when the conversation doesn't contribute to an end, the conversation does not lead to a resolution, uh, the conversation doesn't play any part in anyone's betterment. The conversation, for all intents and purposes, has no purpose insofar as growth or restoration or reconciliation are concerned. No, it is simply speaking in an unhelpful, unedifying way of someone who is not there. It is biting them in the back. Fourth mark is this. It is an indulgent sin. It is an indulgent sin. Listen carefully to these next two sentences. I've written them down here to make sure I get them right. Here we go. When we slander, we are seeking a buzz that comes from our listener admiring us more than the person we're slandering. We're after a buzz. You see, it's another manifestation of selfish ambition. It's a buzz. It's a high. A buzz, a high we derive from our listener now admiring us more than the person we're diminishing. We're stealing from someone else's reputation in order to get our hands on the drug of self-flattery. It's a drug, it's a high, it's a fix that we're after, whether we're conscious of it or not. That's what we're after. And so we will steal from someone else's reputation in order to get our hands on the drug of self-flattery. It is an expression of selfish ambition. 
We want to be at the center of the universe. We slander others in order to convince ourselves that we are indeed at the center of the universe. That's the mechanics of it. It is an indulgent sin. Number five, it is a destructive sin. Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer. It's a whisperer that separates close friends. It is the whisperer, the person in the shadows, the person behind the scenes, the person on the phone, the person texting, the person out of view that separates close friends. It leads to distrust, resentment, and bitterness. It ruins reputations, severs relationships, destroys families, and divides churches. It is like a drop of color in paint. And so Christian wanders into the paint store up there in Granbury. He's got a big job going tomorrow. And he gets whatever it is, liters, quarts, gallons. I don't know. He's just getting a bunch of it. And the color is blue. He's painting blue. They, they don't pull bl blue paint off the shelf. What do they pull off the shelf? White. And then it's just, it's remarkable really, isn't it? It's just a drop or two. A drop or two of the blue. And the shade of that white completely changes and transforms. That's slander. That's backbiting. That is its effect. It has this spreading, infiltrating effect whereby it spreads out, consumes, and ultimately destroys. Number six, it is a symptomatic sin. It indicates that something is dreadfully wrong. Something is wrong. Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I gave, you the, I gave you this comparison, I think, a few Sundays ago. You go into the doctor, and what is, the, what is the, one of the first things he says after he weighs you and takes your blood pressure? Stick out your tongue. And he asks you to stick out your tongue because by looking inside, looking at your tongue, he can ascertain, I don't know, a number of different things concerning your health and well-being. It is absolutely no different in the spiritual realm. What comes out of this mouth is who you are. What comes out of my mouth is who I am. Nothing more, nothing less. The words that we speak and the manner in which we speak them, they are the spiritual barometer that tell us exactly how we're doing. It is a symptomatic sin because when we fall into this sin of the mouth, this sin of the tongue, or anything closely associated with it, we are declaring for all to hear all is not well with me. All is not well with the soul. There is a deeply rooted problem that must be addressed. It is a symptomatic sin. It is, number seven, a spiteful sin. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife. Love covers all transgressions. We hate whatever threatens our happiness. When our happiness is focused on selfish ambition, our hatred is focused on anything that challenges self. The result is strife. We saw it, didn't we, back in chapter 3. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Here's number 8. We're almost there. Just a few more. Stay with me. Number 8. It is a shared sin. It is a shared sin. What do I mean by that? Simply this, it requires more than one person to come to fruition. It requires not only a speaker, but equally complicit in the sin, it requires a 
listener. It requires a speaker and a listener. It is a shared sin. Spurgeon warns, if there were no gratified hearers of ill reports, there would be an end of the trade of spreading them. Did you hear that? If there were no gratified hearers of ill reports, there would be an end of the trade of spreading them. And so it is a shared sin. The, the, way, the way to, the, you, you can think of it this way. You think of a, of a wildfire. Um, hope I'm not showing my ignorance here, but I, I've heard this. You, th- you think of a wildfire. Obviously, one way of dealing with a wildfire is you get as much water as you possibly can, you dump the water on it, right? But some of these, some of these blazes that are out of control, the only way to, to, to try to get them out of control is to get ahead of them, the direction they're moving, and then do what? Burn. A controlled burn. Burn or dig something so that when the fire does reach there, there's no more fuel to consume. There's nowhere for it to go. You see, a a slanderer needs fuel, and a slanderer is only as effective as the hearer. But if there is no hearer, guess what? It does away with the slanderer, because there is no one, there is no one, nothing, nowhere to go with it. Oh, it is a shared sin. Number nine, it is a cowardly sin. It's a cowardly sin. It is a way of campaigning. It's a way of winning uh, support. It's a way of gaining sympathizers. It is a way of vandalizing someone else's character in an attempt to gain allies. It is a devious and hideous form of relational manipulation. That is what it is. A hideous and devious form of relational manipulation. Number 10, it is uncontainable. Where there is a speaker and a listener, slander is uncontainable. Dealing with slander, backbiting, is like trying to rake leaves in the midst of a tornado. Would you even bother? It's pointless. It is absolutely pointless. So too, when slander has broken loose and it is spreading, uh, there is no way to get it back in the box once it's out. Number 11, you've made it. Here's the last one. I know this is terrible stuff. It is a serious sin. It's a very serious sin. Hear what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5:11. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Anyone who bears the name Christian bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immor- immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, verbally abusive, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That makes it a very, very serious sin. Now that might need some explanation. That might need a lot of explanation. You might be thinking to yourself, what do you say? Someone falls into sexual immorality or struggles with with greed. That means we're to break off all association. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is referring to an individual who bears the name brother. Brother. Someone who calls themselves a Christian and yet indulges in these things, and when confronted, does nothing about them. When confronted with their sexual immorality, when confronted with their greed, when confronted with their idolatry, when confronted with their drunkenness, when confronted with these things, their reviling, their verbal abusiveness, their slander, their backbiting, when confronted, 
If they refuse to do anything about it, what is Paul's commandment? I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and yet insists on acting like that. It is a serious sin. It is a most serious sin, I think, because of its cause. The cause is hatred. That's what it is. The cause is hatred. And it is a serious sin because of its effect. Its effect is disorder and destruction. And so Paul leaves the Corinthian church, which was struggling with many of these issues and many more besides, in no doubt as to how they were to respond to believers who persist and persist and persist in sin, yet when confronted and rebuked, refuse to do anything about it, uh, not even to eat with such a one. It is a very serious, serious sin. Do you have the composite sketch? It's brutal, isn't it? It is absolutely brutal. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us right now here in this room can look back on our lives and dare to claim before God, well, I don't have to worry about this. I've never engaged in slander. Oh, I'm hazarding a guess. We've engaged in it probably in the past week without even realizing it. It is something that comes easily. It is something that comes effortlessly. And yet here James confronts it head on with this commandment. Do not speak evil. Stop it against one another, brother. He now moves on to his reason. It's fourfold. Fourfold reason. Number one, when we slander, we demean the church. We demean the church. And so follow along again in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another. Notice the phrase. He inserts it here. He uses it a lot in this epistle. He never, I mean, he is, he's, he's, he's hard on them. He is. But he never wants them to lose sight of what? This reality. Brothers, do not speak evil against one another. Brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. He throws the word in there three times simply because he is trying to convey the incongruence of demeaning, of slandering, of backbiting another fellow believer in the Lord Jesus. I mean, in effect, he's saying, do you not understand what you are doing? Do you not understand you are attacking a family member? You have the same father, God Almighty. You have the same mother, the church herself. You have the same life, the Spirit of God. The same lifeblood flowing through you, the Holy Spirit. You're united to the same Savior, Jesus Christ, the same Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Do you not understand the absurdity of this sin? That you are attacking a family member. The second part of his reason is this. When we slander, we diminish the law. We diminish the law. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In effect, the slanderer is saying, the law doesn't apply to me. Leviticus 19, 16. You shall not go around as a slanderer 
among your people. That doesn't apply to me. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I'm engaging in. I'm, I'm above and beyond that. My cause is right. And so off I go. No, no, no. When we take that attitude and speak against a brother, judge our brother, we are speaking evil against the law and judging the law. Third part of the reason is this. When we slander, we're guilty of disobeying the law. Right at the end of verse 11, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, James says something very similar. And there he speaks of the royal law. What is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, when I backbite my neighbor, when I backbite my brother, I am not only disregarding, I am consciously disobeying the greatest command to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself. Fourthly, he says, when we slander, we defy the judge. You see, in effect, we're making ourselves a judge, he says, right at the end of verse 11. And if I make myself a judge, what are the implications? He draws them out in verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. In Deuteronomy 32, the Lord declares, See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And so fourfold reason. The slanderer demeans the church. The slanderer diminishes the law. The slanderer disobeys the law. And the slanderer defies the judge. And it leads finally to a heartfelt appeal. Last statement in verse 12. It's a question. It's put out there as a question. But who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? If we, were going to, if we were going to update that and translate it, you know, get a little colloquial, I think we might say, who do you think you are? That's what James is saying here. Who do you think you are when you slander and demean and backbite your brother? Who are you to judge your neighbor? The preacher leaves us in no doubt back in the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 18, he declares, whoever utters slander, Whoever utters slander is a fool, is a fool. The Word of God. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who do you think you are before the one lawgiver and judge? Who do I think I am before the one who is able to save and to destroy? Who do I think I am, firstly, as a mere creature, mere dust? Who do I think I am, secondly, as a redeemed sinner, saved by grace and grace alone? Oh, to slander my brother in the Lord reveals that I am a fool. Oh, an appeal, an appeal. Who are you to judge your neighbor? I told you that was going to be a dark, dark episode going through those two verses. You know, as we look at them and we wrestle with the content and we, we apply it to, to our own lives, our own condition, 
there, there are, we just need to be up front, and there are two roads. There are two roads. Uh, let's say one road. It leads. It transfers. One road. We have a starting point on this road, but it changes as we make our way down it. As we begin down this road, I think we're driven, aren't we? I know I'm driven into the preceding verses. Uh, verse 9, I'm thinking of in particular. Be wretched. Oh, be wretched. And mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. I certainly didn't plan it. Chris, Chris planned it. And for, for some reason, he, he decided to include... In our, in our opening this morning as we were singing those texts out of Isaiah chapter 6, we recall, most fitting, most appropriate, most frightening, that Isaiah, as Isaiah witnesses that great revelation, if you like, of God Almighty, and as he sees the Lord seated upon his throne, the one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and you have these angelic beings covering their faces with their wings, covering their feet, two wings, flying around in the presence of the Almighty and declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What is Isaiah's response? It's always startled me, his response. I didn't get it for years. What's his response? I'm undone. I'm undone. Woe is me. This is it. I'm over. I'm about to fall into the hands of the one judge and one lawgiver who is able to kill and to destroy. And woe is me because I am a man of, of all he could say, of everything he could confess before God at that time. What does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. A man of unclean lips. Isaiah, is that the best you've got? Come on. A man of unclean lips. Where are all the skeletons in the closet? Everything you've done in your life, your misdeeds and, and everything else, the sins you've committed, however heinous they might be. I'm a man of unclean lips. Oh no, Isaiah gets it. He gets it. What does he get? He understands and grasps what comes out of here is the clearest indication of what resides within of what is going on deep within. And the sin itself of slander, and this is why it follows closely on the heels of the first 11 verses, even going back into the end of chapter 3. There is this close connection, do you remember, between selfish ambition, je bitter jealousy, and disorder. And one of the greatest manifestations of disorder for James is what? It is backbiting. And it is slander, this speech that reveals the presence of bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy revealing the presence of what? Selfish ambition. Oh, and as we come to grips with that, as we see ourselves in, in that kind of light, we find ourselves, I pray, crying out with Isaiah, I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Oh, I am wretched, I mourn, I weep, my laughter is turned to mourning, my joy to gloom, I humble myself before the Lord. And what's the promise? 
He will exalt you. And the Lord Almighty, what does He send? One of those angelic beings with the tongs, one of the hot coals, right, from the altar. And He draws near to Isaiah, and He touches Isaiah on the lips. Quick question, think of it later. Was that a pleasant experience? Is that a happy, clappy moment for Isaiah? Can you imagine the cry? Can you imagine the agony? Can you imagine the scream? Oh, but the cleansing fire. Oh, the cleansing work of the Spirit of God. As Isaiah sees himself as he is, and now sees that God himself is the only one who can help him. Oh, it drives us, doesn't it? Oh, as we humble ourselves, God exalts us, does He not? And He does so by reminding us that there's good news, even for slanderers. Even for slanderers, there's good news. There is forgiveness in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings me right back to the stanza from that song. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, yeah, I've been told. I get it. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him, look on Christ, and pardon me. We know it, don't we? We know why. We know it is because as he hung upon Calvary's cross, he became a curse for us, bearing our sins, all of our sins in his body on the tree. And the Spirit of God has brought me to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the moment I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, a great transaction transpired, whereby God has dealt definitively with my sin in Christ upon the cross. And now, as God the just looks at me, he is satisfied. Why? Because he sees and he beholds his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there is forgiveness even for slanderers. And not only is there forgiveness in the cross of Christ even for slanderers, but there as we remain in the cross of Christ, we find the answer for our wayward tongues and lips, do we not? Because there we see ourselves as we are. There we grasp our indebtedness to the sovereign grace of God. And the text suddenly makes sense. Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And there, in the light of the grace of God, we find all the motivation. We discover all the impetus we require to put this sin to death, to heed this simple, straightforward command, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Our Father, we pray you would pour out your Spirit upon us and give us those eyes to see a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. And tune, finally tune our hearts, we pray this day, to your word. We pray that you would add your blessing to the preaching proclamation of it. 
And you might do this for the furtherance of your kingdom among us, for the furtherance of your kingdom beyond the walls of this church. And we ask it for your eternal glory in the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.